What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast with me, Emmett, your nuclear barbarian. And today we have a great guest that I want to get to in one second. First, if you guys aren't, and you should be, you should sign up for Grid Brief, which is free. And that's how you'll get this podcast sent directly into your inbox every Friday, along with five days a week of solid, short, compact, and useful energy coverage, along with some pretty cool old photos of industrial projects I like to find to throw in there. So without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guest, somebody that I've been stoked to talk to for a while. This is Brian Gitt. How's it going? Excellent. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, me too. This is going to be great. So I'm trying to remember when I first came across your work. I think it might have been Mark Nelson, who maybe retweeted one of your threads or sent it to me. It was like, yo, check this out. And I know that whenever Mark sends me something, it's going to be like like the premium, like 100% uncut good stuff. And that's exactly what it was. You are incredibly prolific on Twitter. You have some of the most thoughtful and clear energy breakdowns I've seen. But the one thing that I thought was really surprising is that for you're a pro-nuclear guy who used to be in the renewables industry. And I want to know about that. How did you get here, man? What happened? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's been a long road. And yeah. you know, the whole my whole Twitter chapter is really, really recent. So honestly, my on December 1st of last year, so mm-hmm. just like four, just over four months ago, I had 100 Twitter followers and I had zero posts about energy, zero. If anything, I was wow. kind of, I used Twitter to learn and to follow mm-hmm. interesting people, but I really wasn't engaged at all. It was just this passive thing. And to be quite honest, there was a bit of fear and trepidation about putting some of my thoughts and ideas out there. And I, I was trying to weigh, well, what's the cost benefit of this? But I just got to a point where it was just driving me insane, all of the misinformation and all the myths that were being perpetuated on you know, in Twitter and just online mm-hmm. in general. And I feel like we need more people to step up and speak out. And I can't just expect other people to do it. I got to do it myself as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I figured, you know, especially I, given my background, I've spent over 20 years working in the energy sector and specifically in renewables and energy efficiency, I had a unique perspective to share. And so I, I just started sharing it. And, um, you know, it's been kind of wild just connecting with all these people such as yourself and others and Mark. And it's, you know, one of the things that I didn't really appreciate about Twitter is it's such an amazing networking tool, mm-hmm. both in, in the offline world as well. It's not just mm-hmm. about getting retweets and likes and all that was well, just great, but it's really about building relationships offline totally. with people that you meet. And that's been the biggest surprise. And I'm just kicking myself for not doing this earlier <laughs> instead of being a lurker and just, you know, kind of taking and learning, I should have been more putting myself out there and contributing because the, the benefits have been immense. So yeah. It's been fun. yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, it might be good though that it happened this way because one of the things that's really hard to do on Twitter is admit you're wrong. <laughs> and, so, and so if you're somebody who's gone through sort of a big shift, that can be really taxing because you accrue followers, they expect something of you, and they even develop sometimes like a false relationship with you. And then if you're like, actually, I've been wrong, they're like, oh, no, I've been wrong somewhere deep within my identity. Because, you know, sometimes social media like gets inside of us in this way that if we're not careful, can kind of make us batty. I think that happens a lot. I think we can all see that 
online a little bit, you know? Yeah. So I think like, this is all right time, right place for you. Right. Oh, well, thanks. And you know, you, you're mentioning admitting you're wrong. I mean, that's, that's a cornerstone of my whole story is that yeah. I spent over 20 years really working on the wrong problem. And coming to this realization, it wasn't one moment of epiphany or anything. It, sure. it was a gradual process of an evolution of my thinking and ideas. But it, it really, it, it took a lot of effort because as you mentioned a key word just now, which is identity. Mm -hmm. My identity was tied to these beliefs, these belief systems totally. that were so tied to solar, wind, energy efficiency that I wasn't really open to it to in being willing to hear new ideas and to really expose myself and, and mm -hmm. to challenge and kind of deconstruct my thinking. And so when I started to do that, and again, that took place over a number of years, it really kind of shattered my worldview. And it's, it's uncomfortable, <laughs> first yeah. of all, because not only are you having to almost redefine your own identity and your core values, but also the people around you, your work colleagues, your friends, other people, they know you as a certain way. And then all of a sudden, you have these different ideas and different perspectives and it's, it's can be a little isolating, honestly, and a little, I was fearful of it. So. Yeah. Especially if you're somebody within the energy sector, right? Like if you're somebody who has opinions about energy or is curious, like it might have a, a social cost, but if you're in that sector, it could have a social and business cost. Um, oh yeah. I mean, you know. one of the things I get all the time now on Twitter, when, when people say, Oh, you're a, a shill for fossil fuels or this or that. I mean, I don't even know where they get this kind of stuff. I mean, I was like, you know, I made all my money, you know, being a proponent of solar, wind and energy efficiency. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, and by the way, where are these checks? I mean, could, could someone please direct them? Yeah, to somebody the right call address? API. This I is know. my address. They're, they're going to the box. wrong address. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. So let's, let's rewind. Let's rewind. Take me back to 20 years ago when you step into the industry what do you like how do you see the world what do you want i was an idealist and you know as many of us are in our kind of mm -hmm. late teens early 20s very much into the wilderness and in natural mm -hmm. world and i used to lead wilderness trips for teenagers in alaska and the southwest and we'd go out for sometimes 40 days on a trip doing mountaineering and ice climbing sea kayaking and backpacking mm -hmm. all this stuff and i really just fell in love with the natural world and i wanted to do something pragmatic to help preserve it and not necessarily kind of an activist bent on you know save the rainforest I'll, nothing's mm -hmm. wrong obviously we want to save the rainforest but yeah. i wanted something that was very tangible pragmatic where i feel like i was having an impact and i i naturally gravitated to energy and specifically solar and energy efficiency and i can actually remember i was sitting in this uh lecture hall in northern arizona in this little teeny town called prescott and amory lovins was giving a, a lecture Mm -hmm. uh, this is a school I was going to for some time there. And I just remember, I, you know, I was already studying and reading about solar and energy efficiency and taking some classes and uh, all of that. But when I heard him speak, it was like the lights went on. I was like, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, totally. buildings and energy, it's, it's so, it's where the rubber meets the road, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and he's it's, a great communicator. Like, he is. I yeah. mean, he's obviously my ideological enemy, but like, <laughs> I, you have to respect like when I've watched clips of him go so far as to like say that like rebound effects basically don't or won't happen and things like that. I'm like, damn, this guy is so convincing, even though that's crazy. 
Yeah, no, I agreed. I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was hooked. I can't blame you. Like he's so <laughs> persuasive. In, in especially, you know, I was in my, I don't know if I was 20, 21 years old. I was pretty impressionable. I was young. I, I totally. wasn't applying critical thinking skills at the time. And I was super passionate about these topics. And here, I just remember him saying, you know, more sun hits the earth in one hour than we consume in a year. I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. so, I, <laughs> so, you know, those kind of things hooked me in. And then I just went all in. And, you know, I did a lot of different things, but I was the executive director of Green Building Nonprofit in California. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of education and training of contractors in, in development of policy around energy efficiency, renewables, and green building policy. I was the CEO of an energy consulting firm that specialized in clean energy, both commercializing new technologies. So we worked on everything from fuel cell vehicles to carbon capture and storage at power plants to energy efficiency in buildings, a whole variety of different mm -hmm. types of technologies. I did that for like seven years. And, and you know, that was actually during that period of time was when some of the cracks started to show on my thinking oh. as I was kind of maturing in the industry and, and getting more direct uh, hands-on experience. So the thing that really started to open my eyes was during mm -hmm. the Obama administration, during the Recovery Act, you know, when we were in recession and they wanted yep. to create a lot of jobs. And so they pumped billions of dollars into the energy sector right yeah. to, to drive new employment and jobs and my firm we were really successful at winning a bunch of contracts and putting together a whole coalition of mm -hmm. stakeholders in california we brought together all the investor-owned utilities like pg e and socal edison mm -hmm. a bunch of the local governments and then a bunch of these other stakeholders like contractors etc to coalesce around this program called energy upgrade california and we mm -hmm. helped design that program and this was everything from new financing mechanisms to do these improvements, contractor training, quality assurance, rebates. It was a whole, a lot of consumer outreach and education. It's a lot of work, man. It was a lot. And Getting it was a, your coalition we, together is hard as hell. It was hard. But you know what? We had a deadline because this money, it was competitively bid money. And mm -hmm. so we had this deadline and you know they, they're supposed to be shovel-ready jobs. They wanted the money to get out there. And so we were really successful in winning the My company alone, we won a $60 million contract to implement this. So it was a mm. relatively decent scale. And the, the reality is the program didn't work, right? It, it didn't mm. really deliver on the promises. And it really showed me the difference between aspiration, you know, all of the agencies in California from the Energy Commission, the Public Utilities Commission, they were talking about just huge levels of market penetration in terms of how many homes and how many buildings we were going to make more efficient and upgrade. And we just didn't, in, not even a drop in the bucket compared to what the goals were. And it really showed me that I always thought the problem was we just need more money. If we had enough money, then we right. could really drive change. That, that was the problem. We were resource starved. No. <laughs> and that this is we we were we had tons of money you know we had all the right stakeholders we had all the money we had the policymakers behind us in California and yet these programs utterly failed and yet they would not admit failure yeah this was a really interesting they would mm. spin success stories around how many how much energy was saved and how many homes were upgraded but it it was really in my eyes a, a big dismal failure. Mm. This reminds me of when some of this demand side management stuff starts to happen in the late 70s, early 80s, on through the 90s, 
is everybody's like, this will save tons of money. Lovin's the negawatt idea. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to save everybody lots of money and do lots of work. And then Paul Joskow, the economist, like went through and was like, it's incredibly ambiguous how much money this saves. Like, I have no idea how economically or even like technically efficient some of this stuff is. And I think like, I'm not like against efficiency or anything like that, but it's not the same thing as generation and market penetration is hard for anything, especially the utilities industry. Yes. Like it is slow moving, always has (laughs) been, always will be. Yeah. And it's crazy how they evaluate their programs. So usually Mm. it takes years to get the evaluation of programs that happened, you know, several years ago. So the, the, the pace of innovation, iteration, and learning is so far detached from the actual performance of the programs that you don't even get the learnings before you're starting on the new programming cycle again. So it's, wow. there's, there's a lot of structural problems in how these programs are developed. And we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about yeah. billions of dollars of, of funding going into these types of programs. And w- look at California, what's happening. I mean, this is really a sad story. I mean, mm-hmm. California of all places has almost every potential advantage. <laughs> it has amazing weather. It's not too cold. So you don't have, yeah. you know, the, the really cold weather to deal with. You have Silicon Valley of Hollywood. You have a lot of wealth. And yet the state is in a, is really decaying in front of our eyes. I'm sitting here right now in San Francisco, and it's just really a sad story watching what's happening here oh and yeah to, to not only on the social level but also just the quality of life in the actual core foundation which is the electricity grid and reliability mm-hmm. of energy in the state it, it's just really sad to, to watch this kind of no, it is i mean i'm in la i <laughs> oh yeah uh, that's right yeah i know all about it so okay so you work on this project during the recovery act some cracks start to show what happens after this Like clearly you stay in the industry for a little bit. Tell me about some of the other alarm bells that start to go off for you. Because like you said, it's a gradual process. It's a bunch of different, it's like a cresting wave of epiphanies. Yeah, good good analogy. So once I, the next chapter is I I started a startup software company that Mm. was in the clean tech space. And we went through Y Combinator and we, you know, we're basically developing a profile for every home in America. So we developed over 100 million profiles for these homes that we could estimate the cost and savings for electricity, natural gas, water, and sewer for every single property in the U.S. And we'd use this data. It was a, we had an API, which would allow other companies and real estate sites, like let's say Zillow was a customer of ours. They could ingest our data into a home profile. So you could understand the true cost of ownership of a house. How much are you going to spend on utilities was one application of it. So it was giving visibility and transparency and insight into what energy cost and water cost really are. And then we would also build tools, software tools and data that uh, solar companies would use and heating and air conditioning companies would use because they could personalize their engagement with customers to showcase how much money they would save without even doing a home audit first, right? So we would develop, for example, an email campaign where you would get an email with a picture of your house, your address, and all of the home characteristics and how much money you would save by installing solar on your house. So it was really a customized 
in way to tailor the savings and benefits of solar. Yeah, it's highly um, targeted. Yeah, highly targeted without even in, entering an address. I mean, we, we could generate this stuff. So that I worked on that for several years. And that was another kind of epiphany where a lot of the, just the economics of, of solar in, in many applications, obviously solar works in, in is economical for certain types of homes and certain climates. But what we really saw is it doesn't work for, <laughs> for a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. And just the, the unit economics of the whole value prop just started to really, I started to question it and, and started to see that all these things didn't add up. And they only made sense when there was massive subsidy and, and yeah. really subsidized financing and rebates, and tax credits and all these things. You strip all of that out. There's very few places that it makes any sense to do it. Right. I remember somebody, I think it was like a, a, a Canadian anti-wind person that said the turbines only spin when the subsidies flow. Um, (laughs) I like that which I thought thought was good yeah so that must have been troubling to watch like as somebody who's changed my mind on a whole bunch of things because I'm a human being in the world and I try to keep an open mind sometimes when I've committed myself to something and I start to get evidence that it isn't working I get like a really bad feeling in my stomach I'm like hold on now like this isn't what, what like did you hit a moment where you it, it started the tension started to become like too intense for you and you were like I have to ask some hard questions now. It, it was really a gradual process, so yeah. it wasn't uh, one moment or even a series of. It, it was just something that happened and evolved over a series of years, mm-hmm. and just really studying and reading. Once once I started to see these cracks, I really delve deep into expanding my knowledge and wow so, so you jumped on it you jumped on yeah it. so i really wanted to read it as widely as i could and started reading a bunch of books listening to as many podcasts really exposing myself because i was like you know what some of the beliefs i have are clearly not working <laughs> not true yeah <laughs> so i need to really broaden my viewpoint here and not just listen to the choir of all the people i'm surrounded by and in all these programs and kind of the general consensus and start exposing myself to alternative parts points of view and Mm. and and that's really when i started it became the contrast was so clear and a lot of these other ideas made so much sense especially given my experience of working inside because i was kind of inside i'm in california in the belly of the beast of uh, when we're talking about renewable energy efficiency i mean no state has really thrown more money and more programs and more effort Mm -hmm. at this than california so it took getting out of my day-to-day mindset and worldview to start to really come to some different conclusions. That's awesome. Okay. So I think at the end, I want to ask you about some book recommendations for what might've changed your mind or what's helpful or just stuff that you think readers should be aware of. But I'd like to pivot now because we have a little bit of, of this story to a magnificent thread you did on the myth around this. Wind and solar are the cheapest sources of power. I'm everybody, I'm going to put the link to this in the show notes, read it, definitely give Brian a follow because he turns out a ton of stuff like this, but you have a nice list in here of things that wind and solar advocates like to ignore. And I'm one, I'm guessing some of this is also based on your own experience because this is a pretty detailed list. So Let's talk about that. And maybe we could just take them in order because I think they're all fascinating. And I think they all show us more about how our grid actually works. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right, let's do it. So we'll take it from the top. So one of the things you bring up is you say, look, 
one of the things that they ignore are land costs, right? And you give this statistic, a 200 megawatt wind farm spans 13 plus square miles. A natural gas plant with the same generating capacity could fit into a single city block. I mean, that is a pretty huge discrepancy there. Like how, how do they ignore the land footprint? Especially because I think this is really baffling to people there are they are so supported by environmentalists that are trying to preserve the land. Yeah, it, at the core, solar and wind power, specifically when we're not talking about um, solar panels on an individual house, but the farms, right, right. wind, utility scale. Wind, yeah, utility scale solar and wind farms are just expensive, wasteful add-ons. That's mm -hmm. what they are, and they require massive amounts of land because, as you know, they're low power density, mm -hmm. and so. You need as in another stat that I'm sure you're aware of is compared to a nuclear power plant, a solar farm uses 75 times more land to generate mm -hmm. the same amount of electricity as a nuclear power plant. And you gave that great stat on natural gas because nuclear and natural gas have high density and therefore mm -hmm. don't require that land use. So where are you going to build these things? Now, there's not perfect sun and wind in all places. And so you need to go to those areas that have available land and that are appropriate for that. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly expensive when you start talking about square miles versus blocks. <laughs> right. And so right. most people are not uh, factoring in the land cost. Now, obviously, land cost is going to vary tremendously if you're talking about Iowa, Missouri, California. Obviously, it's it's all totally. going to be different cost per acre. But I think everyone can get their head around. If you're talking about a 200 megawatt wind farm that's 13 square miles versus a city block for a natural gas power plant, you're, that's a huge cost. Now, you see these so-called, and I call them so-called levelized cost of energy, because mm -hmm. they're not levelized at all. They ignore all of these additional costs. So you have the land cost, which is just buying the land, right? And yeah. that's the land to put the solar or wind facility. And it's also the land for the transmission that you have to build, which we'll yeah. talk about in a minute. Yeah. But you have to pay the property tax on that land. So it's not just the cost of buying the land. It's then the ongoing maintenance of that land in the form of property taxes. So I, one of the, this thread was inspired in part by American experiment, Isaac Orr, who I know mm -hmm. is a friend of yours. And he had- Shout out great, to Isaac and Mitch, yeah, great work buddies. Amazing report that they put out uh, by in, from the American experiment that I derived some of this data from. So everyone should check out that report. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And what they showed is the property taxes in Virginia- we're going to, on doing this renewable energy plan, we're going to cost on order of around $11 billion, not million dollars, $11 billion, just in the property taxes on that land. So when you use huge amounts of land, there's costs that are associated with it, mm -hmm. buying it, and then the taxes on it. And so that is generally not factored in to the so-called levelized cost of energy that Lazard and other folks put out, because there's a huge discrepancy. And when we're talking about land costs, well, we already have the existing footprint of, of the other power plants and the existing transmission lines. So again, these are they're redundant add-ons. You don't need more land if you're just upgrading the existing natural gas plant or the existing nuclear plant. Why you're, You don't need all this new land. So mm -hmm. it is clearly an additional cost that is unnecessary. So not only do you have all this land, but 
again, it has to be far away from the businesses and homes that are going to yeah. use it because it's who has that much land in a suburb, in a suburban neighborhood or in a city. So when you start to pay for the transmission, now we're just talking about just astronomical skyrocketing costs. You know, to give you an idea of this, so the, there's a 173-mile transmission line in Southern California called Tehachapi. And this was designed to build a lot of renewable energy from kind of the inland part of Southern California to the Los Angeles area. And that originally, they estimated the cost of that 173 miles to be $1.7 billion. But actually, when they build it, because things always cost a lot more in the real world than on paper, it cost about $3 billion just wow. for that 173-mile transmission, high voltage. Now, that's not all of the, the local distribution or anything. That's just the high-voltage transmission line. So I think that there's a huge disconnect in most people's mind about the support infrastructure that's needed to support these large solar and wind farms. So a lot mm -hmm. of land, far away from urban areas. How are you going to get it to all the homes and businesses? You got to build out multiple billions of dollars worth of infrastructure to get it there. To give you an idea of scale. So in California, they put out a, a report, the California Energy Commission, the Public Utilities Commission, in, in work with the utilities. In this report, they're estimated for a California to achieve its 2045 goals of getting to 100% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. They're going to spend $30 billion with a B just on high voltage, not local distribution or upgrades to transformers and all that stuff, just the high voltage transmission lines, $30 billion. Now, that's a huge number, but it's even worse than that because the actual cost to the consumer for every dollar you invest in high voltage transmissions, it costs the consumer $3.50 over the life of that asset, over that infrastructure. Wow. So really, that $30 billion is over $100 billion of cost that someone's going to have to eat. And who's going to eat it? Well, utilities aren't charities. So <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be eaten by the ratepayer, by the customer, by the businesses, by the homeowners in California. And so when you look at that cost, that's now that's not with a single new wind farm or a single solar panel or any of the land costs or any of the property. That's just the cost of the transmission, high voltage transmission lines over $100 billion to that's the rate payer is going to have to absorb. So I don't think most people appreciate the scale of the dollars involved yeah. in these projects. Right, right. Well, okay. So here's something a few years ago. A couple years ago now, a friend and co-author Adrian Calderon and I put out a piece on a nuclear new deal, like just sort of sketching why we, we might want to do that and some of what it would take to get that done. But one of the things we wanted to demonstrate was exactly this thing, the land use comparison. And to, for, to get, we wrote it in 2020, so we used uh, 2019's like total terawatt hours or something like that. We're like, okay, to get that from all wind, it would be, and solar, for each of them, it was about 80% of the size of Ohio without factoring in transmission. To get it from all nuclear, it was smaller than Chicago, right? One, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty shocking. Yeah, um, big and, contrast. Uh, one thing, a very well-known wind advocate basically called me a charlatan because I wasn't factoring in how many wind turbines we could put on farms and farm under. 
And this is always the type of argument you get where it's you have missed something or this can be better integrated into our daily lives, right? Solar advocates, you know, Matt Huber and Fred Stafford just published a piece in Jacobin sort of critiquing the smallest beautiful thing and wanting greater public power like the TVA. And somebody replied like, you know, wind and solar tech has basically gone beyond the need for this type of thing because we can put solar on top of parking lots in LA. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. Okay. So let's walk through why that's crazy. <laughs> like, help us out well, here. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the National Renewable Energy Lab has done a technical feasibility study for available rooftops for solar. Mm -hmm. And what they came to the conclusion is from a technical feasibility standpoint, that 39%, I believe is right around 39% of rooftops could be appropriate, meaning they don't have, they have the right orientation. There's the, no shading, the pitch of the roof. You know, there's all these things that make many rooftops not really appropriate yeah. for solar. Or I would say parking lots. Like if you're a parking lot in between two skyscrapers. You're getting shading, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this, this is, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of limitations. You can't just put solar anywhere. I mean, it's actually, mm -hmm. when you start l really drilling into the economics of it, um, it shrinks dramatically of what mm. actually makes sense when you start factoring all these real world conditions. So you have this 39%. Now you could interpret that number in two ways. Some people say, wow, look, 39% of rooftops, we should just put those on all of those roofs. Um, and okay, that I think there's a case to be made for it. But the problem is the, the economic reality of that. The cost of doing a solar farm versus putting a solar panels on a house, it's double the cost to put it on a house versus a farm, right? A solar farm. Mm -hmm. So the unit economics in the, in 2021, the average cost in the United States for a residential solar system was right about $21,000. So mm -hmm. you have to pay $21,000 upfront. Now, yes, there's ways to finance it. There's a lot of barriers there, obviously, for many people of getting the right financing, being able to access it. But this is just not economically feasible to put uh, $21,000 installations on all of these homes. Who's going to pay for that, mm. right? And, and then we, we run into all types of additional issues with how the grid is going to be maintained because a lot of times the utilities are not able to collect the revenue from, those from that generation capacity on the homes um, from the rates, They're, you know, from a net metering rate that allows them to adequately maintain the grid and keep things running properly. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of nuance to those discussions, but basically it's just too expensive <laughs> to put to put solar on all of these homes and parking garages and buildings in general. And so th that's one of the arguments that people say, but they, if they really started looking at the economic feasibility, not just the technical feasibility and started crunching the numbers, I think you'd see really quick who's going to pay for this. Right. Yeah, They're, it's just not feasible. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, bono, who benefits and who pays are <laughs> some of the most important questions you can ask with anything uh, like this. So like another thing that people, this is something that drives me insane that I'm glad you brought up in your sort of like list of what gets ignored, right? Because people will say, yeah, 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 but batteries. Like we can just store, like when, if we overbuild, this is the thing. I'm gonna try not to lose my temper. This is the <laughs> this is the thing that I hear all the time when people say their counter argument is always, well, if we just overbuild the amount of renewables that we need, then when 
conditions are advantageous for renewables, we can store all of the excess in a huge battery fleet. And that way, when we get difficult periods where the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, then we will resolve all of our reliability concerns. Batteries are not going to save us. First of all, the, the, <laughs> the, the existing batteries are almost all of them are about four hour battery capacity, right? Mm -hmm. We don't really have economical batteries for long duration, eight plus hour battery storage. That really does not exist. There's no market for that today because no one, that's why no one's doing it. Now let's talk about this gap, this gaping hole when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining. And I noticed that that really annoys some of the solar advocates. They're like, we know, we know the wind doesn't blow, but I don't think what they really realize is the deficit that's involved. So let's just take mm -hmm. Germany as a great example. So there was this great analysis done. They went back on incremental data over 35 years of actual data. Not We're not talking about models or projections of the future. Yeah, not models, real, not models. Real data <laughs> going for 35 years. And they went, I think it was down to five minute increments um, mm. of time over 35 years. And what they found was in Germany that there was a 61 day period, 61 days where you had wind droughts and low sun, where the, you would need about 24 days of battery storage to overcome the lack of solar and wind during Ooh. that 61 day period. So we're talking about something that is just on an immense scale, right? I mean, it's hard to fathom the cost and what would each, it's not even, you couldn't even do that, right? No, I mean, I mean Alex Epstein, I think, just did a, some back of the envelope math and energy talking points. And he was like, okay, let's take the Tesla Powerwall because everybody loves it so much. How many, how much would it cost to back up the world for like 72 hours? Mm -hmm. Right. Because the renewables dream is global. Everybody has to do renewables. The whole world has to do it so that we can save the world. And he was like, yeah, that would be like $40 trillion. And that was just three days. That what was I'm three saying, days. And that's several uh, times global GDP. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is um, the 24 days is 36 terawatt hours. I mean, it is just an immense amount of energy. Man. And it's so big that it, it's a non-starter. Like, there's no way that you could do that. And when you use batteries for storage, now you have to double the amount of solar panels and wind turbines you need because you need, obviously, the solar panels and wind turbines to deliver energy to the grid. And at the same time, when the sun's out, you have to charge the batteries for the nighttime and for when it's cloudy and all the other time. So you now need double the infrastructure and investment in solar panels and wind turbines, which obviously increases the costs tremendously. So it's not just the battery storage costs. It's actually how you're using the solar panels mm. and wind turbines mm. that, and how inefficient that is in terms of the, the massive cost increases. That, oh, go on. Sorry. No, no, no. So, I, you know, it's funny. I've been doing a lot of research on how we got here. And some of it's been technical, like what happened to the utilities in the 60s and 70s. I think there's a lot of lessons there for anybody who wants to rapidly build out a certain technology namely nuclear, about what to do and maybe not to do, but also just at sort of the changing of the guard from growth and abundance to efficiency and conservation. And we're in the efficiency and conservation paradigm. And it seems to me that the renewables argument rests on 
an optimism around Moore's law for microchips, which is that it could get, you know, X times, you know, denser, more efficient or whatever it is over time. But that is unique to microchips. It turns out that doesn't work for batteries. That does not work for solar panels. That is not how any of this has worked out. And what I am looking at, and this is just sort of me making opining on a comment here, is that the optimism, the high atomic optimism of the 50s and 60s, interesting historical rhyming between that and the high renewables optimism of the climate change era. Mm. And what I mean by that is people are saying, yeah, we'll just put reactors in cars. You know, Al Gore's dad was like, we'll have nuclear planes. It's like, it takes way longer to integrate a sophisticated technology into your society than that. You know, like Westinghouse and GE were so overburdened in the 60s with orders for nuclear because they were the only ones that made compressor parts that it made everyone's lead times go way up. And I think we're starting to see, especially when we look at Germany or California, a lot of the assumptions around, a lot of the optimism uh, and a lack of criticality around the renewables dream pan out the same way. Now, nuclear ultimately works, so it has that benefit going for it. But I just think that there's like a deep historical irony. Agreed. It's really a category error to apply Moore's law to mm -hmm. solar panels and wind turbines. They're, they're not even in the same category, and it, it doesn't apply, or battery storage. We just look historically. Batteries, the the efficiency and improvements of batteries have not been doubling every twelve to eighteen months. They they're very very incremental. They're like five percent getting five percent incremental, in, incrementally better on an annual basis, somewhere in that that realm. Mm -hmm. So we're I don't even know what we're talking about. Is it's a total category error to associate this with something that has nothing to do with it. And actually, we're starting to see the cost go up, not down, yeah. because commodity inflation, what we're seeing now, because there's basically a lack of supply and obviously some macro global issues converging, it's complicated. But even before the, the Russia-Ukraine war, we had a structural imbalance on supply issues around mm -hmm. commodities. And we were already starting to see wind and solar go up in price. And yes, when people talk to the decline in the cost of solar, over 80% over the last decade, yeah, but where were you starting from? It's important, right? <laughs> You're yeah. starting from a really expensive number. So it's not so hard to, to decrease that. And now it's really flattened out. And now that prices are starting to go back up. And I think what we're likely to see is in the 2020s is, is likely to be a decade of inflation and specifically commodity inflation. Yeah. This isn't something that's going to be solved in the next year or two. It takes on order of 10 years to develop new mine capacity to go through all the permitting and actually get something built to where you're getting minerals out. And so we're not going to be able to rapidly expand supply of these critical commodities in any short order of a few years. We're talking five, 10 year timeframes on the minimum. And so we're going to see the cost of solar and wind go up substantially. We've already wiped yeah. out all of the gains since 2018, just in, just in the last year, because they're already up, like I think on, on average about 30% solar, 25, 30%, I believe, the cost of the panels. But a lot of that cost reduction, that 80%, mm -hmm. people don't realize that was in large parts due to the Chinese government plowing a massive amount of subsidies 
into their manufacturing capacity to basically undercut and kill competition in the US and Europe. Right. And using so, cheap, cheap coal and slave labor exactly. to drive so when, down costs as when well. When you're using slave labor, cheap coal, and your government is pumping massive amounts of money into your industry to kill any competition, of course you're going to cost going to go down. And the other thing was cheap money. People forget that the cost of financing was so cheap over the last decade. It was I mean, it's almost free, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the interest rates were so low. Incredibly I mean, bullish. Inc like, yeah. yeah. We're not in that reality anymore. Interest rates are going. So the costs are going to, between commodity inflation and interest rates, we're going to see increases increases in the cost of solar and wind. Well, going right. Forward. This is something I've been keeping an eye on. There's a big fight in the solar industry now between the people who are incredibly pissed at the Biden administration for investigating whether or not China is selling their slave labor solar panels through other Southeast Asian countries or Asian Pacific countries, and those who want a domestic U.S. solar panel industry that are welcoming that and want protectionist tariffs. Now, I happen to be on the side of the latter people only because that will absolutely destroy the cost, the cost competitiveness for solar amongst the other energy comparisons here, because there's no way if you made it here the math would ever add up on someone's oh, not even close. I mean, just never, never. Yeah. Not even if you like totally deregulated that industry <clears throat> because the energy you put in is not worth the energy you get out really. Maybe of course, as you said, in some niche cases, somebody wants it on their home and there's perfect conditions for it. Maybe there are some places, again, there would be very few where utility scale might actually work out for you. But as like a national plan, it doesn't make any sense. And that sort of brings me to one thing that drives me insane that I'm so glad you brought up in that is the equipment replacement costs. Hmm. Because one of the things, I remember reading this in a book put out by several authors, all of whom have like bylines at um, the New Republic and stuff like that called A Planet to Win. And the way they talked about the renewables build out, the final Green New Deal, as they called it, is that you would just install all of the renewables and then walk away. You were now in harmony with nature. You didn't have to worry about climate anymore. It was all gonna be okay. And I was just like, dude, what are you gonna do in 20 years? <laughs> like you're screwed because a solar panel can't make a solar panel and a wind turbine can't make a wind turbine. It just doesn't work like that. So tell, tell me about these replacement costs. They're massive. And one of the things that a lot of the levelized cost of energy assumptions, I think, are so disconnected from the actual real data and real conditions on the ground. This is where models and data just uh, of, based upon the real world really depart. So there's some great data and studies that have come out of Europe and the UK that look at wind turbine actual performance versus, you know, the oftentimes they're saying- Versus oh, nameplate capacity. Yeah, <laughs> they, they'll last for 30 years. No, what they're, what they're seeing is you're getting, after about 16 years, the maintenance cost to keep a wind turbine going is so high that it oftentimes doesn't even make economic sense because the reduced output for offshore wind is like 50%. And I think it's 32% oh production <laughs> for onshore. So if you're reducing the, the output energy generation by 50% after 16 years, and you have increased maintenance costs, it starts to not make a lot of sense to keep it going. You're certainly not going to double the life of that thing. 
and let and run that until it's 30 years old. And so what you're seeing is a lot of times they're getting, quote, just retired. Let's just be generous and say around the 20 year mark, right? Sure. So so let's just say with even though four years is not insubstantial amount of time where it's degrading and only having 50% of the output. But even at 20 years, which is generous, comparing that to the alternatives like a nuclear plan, as you know, you know, 60, 80 year at least, with it just you're going to have to replace that wind farm three times or four times in the same period as one investment in a nuclear plant. So when you, are they factoring in that into the model and that you're going to have to replace that thing four times? No, obviously they're, they're not. So it's really a lack of long-term thinking and it's really all driven by ideology and short-term mm -hmm. politicians want the votes. This is kind of the trending fashionable thing right now. So it's an easy way to get votes mm -hmm. and to throw money at something. They can build them quickly so they can show results, but yeah. it's really lacking that long-term thinking. And one of the things you wrote about that I really enjoyed in one of your pieces was talking about how we've inherited this amazing infrastructure that mm -hmm. our parents and grandparents have built. And we're, we're like the little spoiled rich kids living off the past, right? Mm -hmm. As a society, that's what we're doing. We're, we're basically eating away at that investment that was there. And we're not contributing and building the necessary infrastructure that's needed today. And the infrastructure we are building is really cheap, low quality solar and wind that's going to be gone in 15, 20 years mm -hmm. um, and not going to be sustainable over the longer term. So it's, it's a huge problem when you really start looking at the total life cycle cost of what a wind farm and a solar farm would actually yield. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's the, the historian um, Toynbee that says that civilizations almost always die by suicide. And I think when you get to a point where there is this mechanism by which it becomes beneficial, for certain people to undermine the very foundations of society while securing their status within that society, you're cruising for a bruising mm -hmm. <laughs> at a massive scale. And I think that that's where we are. And that's really unfortunate. But I don't think that that means that the fight is lost or that it's over. I think right now we have an incredible window of opportunity to make the case for how it could be different and how it could be better. Because if we look back to how the changing of the guard happened during the energy crisis in the seventies, there were actually a few highly motivated people, Amory Levins being one of them, waiting in the wings for that model of energy production to unravel. And now is our moment, I think. That is the hopeful note that I have. And the good news is we have physics and economics on our side. So even better, even better. <laughs> you so, know, you know that that's the 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 problem is it's things like nuclear power is inevitable. It's going to happen, I believe. Yeah. It's just how many people are going to have to suffer and, until we in, get there. Yeah. In, until we get there, and I I think the you know Robert Bryce really has been championing this progression of natural gas and nuclear for decade or more. And that's really what there's too much even infighting within the the energy space of kind of, well, is it nuclear only or is it natural gas only? I mean, I think we need to have a bigger tent and realize we, we do need multiple sources of energy 
for different applications and different purposes to get there, but it's not in all of the above, all of the above answer. So mm -hmm. there, that's another common thing that I hear all the time. Well, we just need every tool in the toolbox. We need all these sources of energy. No, we don't. Wind and solar are a huge opportunity cost. Every dollar in every day we invest in more solar and wind farms is basically undermining the unit economics and in, in the benefits of nuclear and natural gas moving forward, because it is Meredith Engwin pointed out in her excellent book, Shorting the Grid, they're distorting the price of power mm -hmm. and they're cannibalizing the economics of these reliable power plants. And so we cannot allow, again, it's fine. If you want to put solar uh, in certain places and niche applications, especially in rural areas where you don't even already have power distribution, great, that's fine. I'm not trying to vilify the technology. I'm just saying it's not a technology to power, to power industrialized society and it's distorting the price of power and it's preventing high grade, long-term sources of power like nuclear and natural gas from being adopted. So it's not all the all of the above. We need to stop that mentality um, mm -hmm. and really focus on the things that work and the things that are going to yield the best results over the long term. I think that that's absolutely true. I think that you know the iron's hot. We're striking now, and I think we're going to convince a lot of people, especially if we keep working together. Because I agree with Robert's analysis. Alex Epstein has been incredibly influential on my thinking, as has basically just reading history and understanding that these things take way longer than anybody wants them to. And if yes. we can accept that, then we can make practical decisions today. So I think on that note, we're going to wrap up. Brian, thank you so much. I want to have you back on to talk about injury stuff again sometime. This was an absolute blast. Thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. So everybody hop into the show notes. Follow Brian, check out his website, check out his Twitter, just check him out. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We will catch you next week.